Fired Up show starts right now. And hello and welcome, everybody. Welcome back to Fired Up, right here on your choice for podcasts, WJMS Media. And by the way, did you know that you can hear this podcast, uh, in addition to listening from the WJMS uh, website, uh, you can also find us on Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. So make sure, let your friends know, those that are members on those platforms, that they can hear the show on their favorite uh, podcast platforms out there. So with that being said, welcome everybody to another edition of Fired Up right here. This is Steve. I host the show each week and uh, we get into the mechanics of what makes a political system here in the United States tick or not tick, depending upon your perspective. And uh, we're going to do just that, uh, starting off with a report as we do each week on where we are with the COVID pandemic here in the United States. And we currently have 74.2 million cases of the disease uh, that have been recorded here in the U.S. 884,000 people have uh, passed away from the disease, unfortunately. Uh, but 535.1 of you out, million of you out there, rather, uh, have received at least one dose of the vaccine, uh, with roughly 58.2% of uh, those being fully vaccinated and better than 67% uh, having received at least one dose. So we continue to make our progress in that and we continue to have work that we need to do. So uh, let's keep up the good work. Let's make sure that we're getting vaccinated, that we're practicing the medical uh, safety practices that we've been told. Uh, Lord knows we've been hearing about it for two years plus now. So it, it should be routine. Um, the Omicron latest variant news uh, still continues to be a fast spreading variant. But overall, uh, the symptoms that are being reported tend to be more uh, or less severe than what we had with the Delta variant and with the Alpha variant of the disease. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, do what you can not to get infected with COVID, uh, you'll be better both in the short term and the long term for it. Um, all right, so let's move on and, and get into some of the political discussions that I want to talk about this week. And first and foremost, we should be aware that uh, this show is being recorded on you know the last day of January, which means February 1st begins Black History Month where we take time to recognize and celebrate the many contributions that African-Americans have made to the United States of America um, over the you know, past couple of hundred years. And we're going to get into that in a little bit uh, later on in the show. But I did want to start out with uh, the news coming out uh, this week, uh, very big news in that uh, Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer has announced that he is resigning uh, or stepping down from the bench. Uh, and that will give President Biden an opportunity to appoint uh, a justice to the Supreme Court. Now, during the campaign, Biden committed that, you know, should he get the opportunity 
to appoint a justice to the Supreme Court that he would, in fact, appoint a black female to occupy that position. Well, he is uh, sticking true to that commitment. He has stated uh, for the record that he is considering uh, the appointment of a, a black female to the Supreme Court. And, you know, that has brought, obviously, uh, a joyous response from the African-American community and, not surprisingly, uh, a lot of uh, friction and heat and criticism from the conservative slash right slash right wing slash radical right contingent here in this country. Now, so let let let's analyze that, and we're gonna we're gonna talk about the the specifics of who these uh, individuals are in a minute. But you know the the media and the pundits were quick to jump on this story, um, you know, and ranging from uh, Senate Judiciary Chair uh, Dick Durbin, who defended President Biden's plan uh, to nominate a black woman to the Supreme Court. Uh, despite blowback from Senate Republicans and new polling that indicates that most Americans want the White House to consider candidates regardless of race and gender. Now, this comes out of an article from Politico that was reported on January 30th, and it, it should be noted that, you know, as we've talked about on this program, anytime... Uh, you hear someone uh, describing the results from a poll, no matter which side of the, the political spectrum it's from, uh, who it's from, and so forth. As we've said on this show, as we talked about uh, when we've, we've gone through and talked about polls, you really need to consider a couple of key factors. When you see a poll reported, one of the first things you should look for is how many people they spoke to. If they are talking about from this poll that all Americans and the poll only spoke to 500 people, uh, that you know it isn't a representative sampling. If they are talking about a poll of quote Americans close quote and they talk to you know 2,500 or 3,000 people that begins to approach a more demographically representative uh, segment. But keep in mind, who is giving the poll, you know, what is their uh, agenda? If the poll is being taken by a solidly left-wing organization, uh, one that is, you know, firmly entrenched in liberal philosophy, then you should take that poll with the grain of salt that it is likely that they are talking to people of the same persuasion. If the poll is from the other side of the spectrum, the same rule would apply. Now, having said all that, I go back to the point from this article in Politico that says, you know, um, the majority of Americans, most Americans, to, to quote it directly, want the White House to consider candidates regardless of race and gender. So let's, let's break that down a little bit. Again, the, the key words there, most Americans. What does that mean? Uh, does that mean 
they spoke to 50,000 people? Does it mean they spoke to 500 people? Uh, the, the key point in that statement that I want to dive into is that the expectation is that the White House should consider candidates regardless of race and gender. I agree with that. Um, I think a lot of the pushback here against these candidates um, is pushback that is being initiated primarily because they are um, black females. So, you know, it, it's, it's not that they aren't qualified. In plain fact, most of the, the short list of candidates that President Biden is considering are, in, in fact, more qualified than at least two of the three uh, picks that, um, you know, former President Trump uh, put on the bench uh, in, in during his term. So, you know, it, it is, you know, a, a big issue uh, of contention to consider, you know, if you're rejecting a candidate for the Supreme Court primarily or largely because they are a, a woman of color or African-American woman or black woman, however you want to categorize it, um, rather than looking at their qualifications for the position. And as I said, these women that are on this shortlist are eminently qualified to be justices on the Supreme Court. Uh, you know, and, and that we will also take a look at in a couple of minutes as we look at some summaries of their experience. Uh, you know, and, and again, the idea that there is pushback happening because President Biden is appointing a, a female to the bench. Uh, you know, this is something that really is not um, unusual. 1981, President Ronald Reagan uh, set the, the political world, you know, uh, abuzz when he announced that he was nominating Sandra Day O'Connor to be uh, confirmed to the Supreme Court as the first woman confirmed to the high court again in 1981. Uh, and let's not forget, for all of his, his faults, um, Donald Trump did appoint a woman uh, to take over or, or fill the seat left by the passing of uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, in the selection of Amy Coney Barrett in 2020. Um, you know, there have been, you know, numerous women appointed, as I said, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, Justice Sotomayor. There are, you know, ha have been quite a few, Sandra Day O'Connor, um, among, among others. So appointing a woman to the court is not really anything that is new. Appointing a black woman to the court is new and is generating some um, uh, kickback uh, from that, that nomination or that uh, pending appointment. So you have to ask if appointing a woman to the Supreme Court is not really a new thing. It's something that is, you know, 40 years old. Uh, again, Sandra Day O'Connor uh, you know, came onto the court in 1981, um, then it must be that it is the fact that this candidate, that this seat 
is intended to be filled by a black woman that is creating the controversy, that's creating the pushback. And, you know, let, let's reach out or, or let's get the word out to those that are against it. Let's call it real. Call it what you, you're thinking. It's not that you're against having a woman on the court. There are all there are two currently and, you know, there have been three in, in the past and so forth. Um, the idea that your, you know, consideration uh, eliminates so many other constituencies uh, is on its face, you know, a fair statement. Yes, there are other uh, groups represented that, you know, could equally um, provide a, a wise counsel to the Supreme Court. Um, but I think President Biden is looking at a constituent group that has, in, in, in at least the last 50 years, proven to be a mighty political force that has not had a voice of representation on the bench uh, in, in the, the person of a female of African-American descent. We've had African-American males, uh, but we have not had African-American females. So in correcting that, um, that gap, you know, Biden is actually doing what could be argued to be a good thing. Now, he's taking some, some heat and some flack for it, but, you know, that's kind of what you might expect. Um, you know, in, in this article, which I found in Politico, uh, it quotes um, Senate Republicans and conservative media that have also criticized Biden's vow to nominate a black woman with Senator uh, Roger Wicker, a Republican of Mississippi, suggesting in a local radio interview on Friday that whomever the president picks will be a, quote, beneficiary, close quote, of affirmative action. This is an argument that is also nothing new when talking about uh, appointing uh, minorities or people of color to, uh, to the federal bench or to the Supreme Court. Uh, the same thing was said when Justice Clarence Thomas was um, uh, put up to take over the seat that was left when Justice Thurgood Marshall passed away. Uh, and, you know, Justice Thomas made it very clear in his um, confirmation hearings that he did not believe himself to be a candidate, to be a beneficiary, let, uh, let me say, of affirmative action. But that's an argument that uh, we will save for another show, um, you know, and uh, probably come up and follow up with that in the coming weeks while we're in the midst of Black History Month. Um so the criticism that President Biden's receiving uh, on, you know, his intention to uh, submit a black female as his nominee for the Supreme Court uh, is not just limited to uh, to Democrats or Republicans. He's getting criticism from, you know, uh, across the aisle that said, you know, in some respects, some Democrats have uh, said on the record that they think it was a, you know, a tactical error to telegraph your hand 
uh, as it were. Uh, Senator Susan Collins, who's a Republican of Maine, told ABC on um, uh, Sunday uh, this past weekend that you know she would welcome the appointment of a black female to the Supreme Court, but she did accuse Biden of mishandling and politicizing the process uh, in selecting a replacement for Justice Breyer. Um, another said that, uh, you know, another part of the quote says that she believes that diversity benefits the Supreme Court, but the way that the president has handled this nomination has been clumsy at best. Uh, and it should be noted, that's not the first time that uh, President Biden has accused of being sort of ham-handed with how he is handling the, the, the prosecution of, you know, the presidency since he has taken over for this past year. Um, he has, you know, taken a very, you know, as, he, as she says, clumsy uh, approach to several um, important issues, you know, his Build Back Better bill, um, his, his infrastructure program, which we talked about last week, um, you know, it, it was likely both a strategic and tactical uh, misstep uh, to present such huge uh, economic packages into a congressional system that is marginally on your side at best. Uh, and where you have, you know, at least two key senators who are roadblocking, you know, your progress forward. Uh, but again, we talked about that in last week's show, and I'm sure that we're going to be mentioning those subjects again in the coming weeks. Getting back to um, the Supreme Court picks, um, you know, it, it's clear that the president has some work um, what uh, with what he needs to do um and you know the 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 idea that president biden or, or then candidate biden made the statement that he was going to take this action uh was and is being viewed with a very political lens uh considering you know that it was the the votes of Black people um, in you know certain southern states that not only resurrected his campaign, which was faltering, you know after the New Hampshire primaries and and the black vote was critical to his success in Super Tuesday. So of course that would raise the argument that uh, was this just a a political calculus decision uh, or you know, was this actually a a heartfelt commitment to to advancing you know the 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 status and stature of the Supreme Court? I'd have to say, you know, given what President Biden has shown us over the the years of his years of service, for one, and his year as president, uh, for two, and and you know what he also brought to the table as vice president uh, when Barack Obama was president is that it is clear that that this man has a commitment uh, and he is going to live up and honor that commitment. And we should do, you know, what we can or Democrats should do what they can uh, to to help and support 
the efforts that he has going forward. So, you know, that that's kind of where we sit with uh, the Biden choice. Let's take a few minutes and look at the people who currently appear to be because uh, nothing is cast in stone on the shortlist and and may and give a few highlights as to what they bring to the table. So on January 27th, um, there was an article that came out of the Associated Press. Uh, it was written by Jessica Gresco and Colleen Long, uh, and it's titled Who's Who Among Some Possible Supreme Court Contenders? And it focuses on a, a, a potential shortlist of candidates for the Supreme Court that President Biden may pick from uh, to put forward for his pledge to nominate the first black woman to be a Supreme Court justice. So in, in no particular order, uh, you know, none, you know, above or below another, just listing them as they show up in the article. Uh, the, the first one we see is a woman by the name, and I will apologize now for names that I mispronounce or hack, uh, so forgive me. But uh, the first is Ketanji Brown Jackson, and you know she was someone who had a long-term uh, uh, relationship, friendship, uh, and working relationship with Justice Breyer. She was a graduate of Harvard and Harvard Law School. Uh, she clerked for Breyer from uh, 1999 to 2000. Uh, she, you know, according to the article, was comfortable enough with her former boss to have a little fun at his expense. In 2017, after Breyer accidentally brought his cell phone to court and it rang, Jackson introduced him at an event and pretended to get a call mid-introduction from Breyer's colleague, Justice Neil Gorsuch. Um, after clerking for Breyer, Jackson was a lawyer in private practice, worked as a public defender, and served on the U.S. Sentencing Commission. Uh, President Barack Obama nominated her to be a federal trial court judge in the District of Columbia in 2013. Biden elevated her to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit, where she has served since June of last year. Uh, recently, she was part of the three-judge panel that ruled against former President Donald Trump's effort to shield documents from the House Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection at the Capitol. Um, so she uh, also has is known to have... Uh, connections to Republicans. She's related by marriage to former House Speaker Paul Ryan. Um, Jackson's husband, Dr. Patrick Johnson, uh, who is a surgeon, is the twin brother of Ryan's brother-in-law. Uh, the judge and her husband have two daughters. Uh, the next under consideration, Leandra Kruger's, Kruger. Leandra Kruger will be the first person in more than 40 years to move from a state court to the Supreme Court if she were to be chosen and confirmed as Biden's nominee. The last was Sandra Day O'Connor, a barrier breaker who was the, the court's first female justice. Um, and again, she was placed on the court uh, by President Ronald Reagan uh, in 1981, uh, fulfilling a campaign promise he met. 
she was appointed. She was appointed to the California Supreme Court uh, in 2015 by uh, former Governor Jerry Brown of California, and uh, she's seen as a moderate on the California Supreme Court uh, among their seven members. Uh, she grew up in Los Angeles. Uh, she is the daughter of a Jamaican mother and Jewish father. Um, her parents are both pediatricians. She attended Harvard before getting her law degree from Yale. Um, like Jackson, she was a law clerk to a Supreme Court justice, in particular, Justice John Paul Stevens. And um, she's also worked for the Department of Justice. And so, you know, it, it's... You know, another in the list of candidates who uh, do bring a, an extensive credential background to uh, the, the potential possibility of being a justice on the bench. Next is uh, J. Michelle Childs. And interestingly, her resume does not include a law degree from Harvard or Yale or service on a federal appeals court, common, uh, common characteristics of the current justices. But she has a powerful backer who has Biden's ear, Representative James Clyburn, Democrat of South Carolina. And if that name sounds familiar, Representative Clyburn was the one who uh, endorsed uh, Joe Biden during the campaign uh, that turned the tide for him, as I, I mentioned a few minutes ago on Super Tuesday, and ultimately led to him becoming president of the United States. Now, before you say it, and I, I can hear you saying it out there, uh, wait a minute, how can she be a justice on the Supreme Court? Don't you have to be a, a judge uh, to, to be a Supreme Court justice? And the answer is no, you don't. Uh, it is not a requirement uh, that you uh, be a judge prior to your appointment. Uh, it's also not a requirement uh, that you actually uh, have any kind of law education. Um, it is merely a requirement that you be someone of good character and able to apply um, your clear thinking to the cases presented in front of you. Um, but there is no requirement for for any judge to a to be a lawyer, have gone to law school, uh, have been a judge prior, or anything like that. Um, being a judge is an appointment based on uh, character uh, of uh, or strength of character, not necessarily on academic credential. Um, she does have a uh, is a graduate of the university. University of South Carolina School of Law. She has a master's degree from that school as well as a different legal degree from Duke University. Uh, so, you know, she has a legal education. Um, she, you know, according to Representative Clyburn, she says Judge Childs has uh, deep legal experience that gives her the ability to empathize with the Americans whose cases are considered. And she also, he also says that she has everything I think it takes to be a great justice. We've got to recognize that people come from all walks of life and we ought not to dismiss anyone because of that. Referring back and going back to what I was saying about not having 
to you know have prior uh, justice experience or law, etc. Um, so you know she was a judge. She was previously a state court judge and has served as a federal trial court judge since 2010. In 2014, before the Supreme Court ruled that gay couples had a right to marry nationwide, she ruled in favor of a gay couple seeking to have their District of Columbia marriage recognized in South Carolina. Uh, She was nominated to the Federal Appeals Court um, by President Biden uh, for the District of Columbia Circuit. Uh, but senators have yet to act and confer her nomination. Um, Only Justice Elena Kagan wasn't a federal appeals court uh, before joining among the current justices on the bench. So next we have, uh, we'll look at uh, Sherilyn Eiffel. And this is another case where if Biden decided to go outside of the judiciary, Uh, The choice could be NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund head Sherilyn Eiffel, who is 59. Uh, She is a deeply respected civil rights lawyer who has held the post since 2013. And Eiffel, who has announced she will step down in the spring, is the second woman to lead that um, NAACP uh, LDEF um, organization. Um, She brings a a strong civil rights, uh, civil liberties background. She started her career at the American Civil Liberties Union, then worked on voting rights legislation at the Legal Defense Fund before she joined the faculty at the University of Maryland School of Law, where she taught for more than 20 years. Uh, She graduated from Vassar College and earned her law degree from New York University School of Law in 1987. She was... uh, among the group of lawyers uh, named to study the Supreme Court by Biden in 2021. Uh, She's also a prolific author and writer, and she wrote an opinion column in the New York Times uh, last year on how the legal profession must reckon with the fact that lawyers helped President Donald Trump by enabling him to uh, effort the most dangerous assault on American democracy in more than a century, close quote. Um, so, you know, she brings a, a varied and depth of background in civil liberties and affirmative action. She's also a prolific writer, um, much like uh, Justice Thurgood Marshall was, who also came out of the NAACP Legal Defense, Legal Defense Education Fund. Um, another potential candidate from outside the judiciary, uh, Melissa Murray, is a New York University law professor. She graduated from the University of Virginia and Yale Law School. Uh, she clerked for Justice Sonia Sotomayor, who was then at the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit. Um, As a teacher at NYU, she teaches family law and reproductive rights and justice, as well as constitutional law. Her research focuses on marriage equality, reproductive rights, and the laws around sex and sexuality. She previously taught at the University of California Berkeley School of Law. Uh, So, you know, aside from her substantial law journal work, she's written for the San Francisco Chronicle, Vanity Fair, The New York Times, And in December, Murray wrote an opinion 
essay for the, for the Times about Justice Amy Coney Barrett's role as both a mother and conservative as the high court considered the most serious challenge in a generation to Roe v. Wade, the landmark abortion rights case. So another of the justices or, or another of the candidates under consideration to be Supreme Court justice is Holly Thomas, uh, who's 43. She was just confirmed uh, to the largest federal appeals court last week, uh, the San Francisco-based U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit. She is the second black woman ever to sit on the court. Uh, Thomas is a graduate of Stanford University and Yale Law School. She had been in the family law division of Los Angeles Superior Court since 2018, and before that she was deputy director of executive programs at the California Department of Fair Employment and Housing. She's also worked for the NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund and, uh, and was an appellate attorney in the Justice, Apart in the Justice Department's Civil Rights Division. Uh, apologies, my tongue is getting a little twisted. Uh, she overcome a party line vote deadlock in the Senate Judiciary Committee requiring an additional floor vote to move her forward after Republicans questioned her ability to separate her, pro her prior advocacy for progressive issues from her work as a judge. During her time in the New York Solicitor General's office, she filed briefs advocating for policies that allowed transgender people to use the bathrooms that correspond to their gender identity. At her confirmation hearing, she said she was more than able to set aside her work in order to fairly serve as a judge. Uh, another uh, candidate is Eunice Lee, who's 51, was named to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit in August the first former federal defender to serve on a court. Her appointment was lauded as a recognition of the need to broaden the judiciary's legal expertise, particularly because defense lawyers are not a common choice for such posts. Uh, Ms. Lee graduated from Ohio State University and Yale Law School. She then clerked for District uh, Court Judge Susan J. Blott and later for Judge Eric Clay on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit. Uh, she spent time from 1998 to 2019 at the Office of, Appellate, of the Appellate Defender in New York City and also taught clinical law at New York's University Law School. Uh, Candace Jackson Akiwumi uh, is another candidate and she comes from a defense attorney background having worked in the Federal Defender Program in the Northern District of Illinois since 2010. She was confirmed to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit in June on a bipartisan vote. Uh, Jackson Akiwumi served as Prince, attended Princeton University and then Yale Law School. She began her legal career as a law clerk to the U.S. District Court Judge David Kaur and then worked as a clerk on the Fourth Circuit Appeals Court. Uh, and, and finally, Wilhelmina Wright, uh, which is a candidate Biden is looking at the, at coming out of the Minnesota U.S. District Court, uh, judgment Wilhelmina Wright, uh, 58, the only jurist in Minnesota's history to serve in the state district court, appellate court, and state Supreme Court. She was sworn in six years ago to the federal bench, 
making history as the state's first black female federal judge. At the time, 14 Republicans voted for her. A graduate of, wait for it, Yale University and Harvard Law School, she first clerked for Judge Damon Keith on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit. She went into private practice in education law, representing school districts that sought to better educate public school children. She was a federal prosecutor in Minnesota for about five years before she was first named a Minnesota state judge. She became a federal judge in 2015. So those, at least as of right now, those are candidates that uh, may be on President Biden's shortlist for uh, the first black female appointee uh, to the Supreme Court. Now, you know, it, it's, it should be noted and, and noted with great seriousness that uh, these women collectively have just a huge background and breadth and depth of legal knowledge and experience that will be of benefit to the Supreme Court. Um, you know, and I, I've heard uh, people in the media saying that you know any one of the candidates that Biden that appear to be on this short list from President Biden so far, uh, their experience, as, as I said at, at the top. Um, far out distances, at least two of the uh, current Supreme Court justices that were appointed by uh, President Trump. And, you know, it, it is clear um, as I look at the experience of these women and compare and contrast with what I have read of the experiences of, um, you know, Justice Amy Coney Barrett, that again, uh, these women are you know, head and shoulders above uh, what those women, that woman and, 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 and similar have brought to the Supreme Court in past. Um, and that just goes to something that, you know, most black people know. It, it's kind of one of our, our unspoken rules that in, in order to be um, considered at 100 percent, we need to perform at 150 percent or 175 percent. Um, we need to overachieve in order just to achieve. And, you know, these, these women, when you read their, you know, their experience uh, and their, their resumes and their um, curriculum vitae, it's clear that, you know, any one of these women would make an excellent Supreme Court justice. Any person that had the level of credentialing that, that these uh, women bring uh, would make a tremendous Supreme Court justice. That should be clear and without argument. So when you look at the, the experience, both individually and collectively, of these women in being considered to be on the Supreme Court, and then you hear that there is criticism and objections uh, coming from, you know, uh, the, the conservative side of the political spectrum um, saying that, you know, by narrowing his search to these individuals, he is, you know, eliminating consideration, a range of 
uh, other uh, potential justices uh, from other groups and so forth. And to an extent, that argument does hold a little bit of water. Now, you have to balance that with the fact that um, you already have, you know, on the, the, the uh, nine people who currently sit on the bench, all except one are, well, all except two are white. Uh, all except uh, two are men. And, you know, the, the vast majority of them fill pretty much the same uh, college backgrounds as, you know, these women do. So my point is that if you eliminate anything that might indicate that they are black and anything that might indicate they are female, uh, these lawyers, these judges would stand equally head to toe, shoulder to shoulder with anybody currently on the bench. It just so happens that they are black females. So if your criticism of them isn't on their legal expertise or their background or their history, then your objection to them can primarily be based on one thing, their race and their gender. And that's wrong. Yes, you know, there is a wide range of people who are qualified and capable of sitting on the Supreme Court of the United States. However, there are a, a group of people who bring a perspective. And, you know, you look back at uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg brought a perspective to the bench. Thurgood Marshall brought a perspective to the bench that it would not have um, access to. You know, there are a, a bunch of people, Justice Scalia brought, you know, expertise and a perspective to the bench that, that was very valuable in cases that came before the bench. Any one of these women will bring that additional perspective and, and viewpoint to the bench that the bench has not had. Have there been women on the Supreme Court? Yes. Has there been a black woman on the Supreme Court? No. And there is a value to that, that ethnic category that the Supreme Court will ultimately benefit from. So that's my thought for that. Um, I guarantee you that we will be touching on this subject again in the coming weeks as uh, the the process gets narrowed down and President Biden's choice becomes uh, more clear. And then we get into the actual debates of the confirmation process, which should be really interesting. I uh, want to pivot from that to an article that came across my radar. And as, as is typical, uh, the article came out of uh, Washington, came out of the... Uh, New York Times and the Washington Post, I believe. I'm looking for the byline as we speak. And basically, it is a uh, coverage of a, a debate that occurred in the Senate um, or, or among 
it's only three uh, current black members. And uh, two of those are Democrat, and that would be uh, Senator Cory Booker and Senator Raphael Warnock. And one is Republican, and that would be Senator Tim Scott. And uh, on Wednesday, they had a uh, discussion. Uh, it ran for uh, about 10 hours that highlighted the Senate's lack of diversity. The three men, and this is, again, the article uh, covering this, the three men brought vastly different perspectives to an issue that each said had affected them deeply in personal ways. With the two Democrats, Mr. Warnock of Georgia and Mr. Booker of New Jersey, serving as self-described witnesses to Republican-engineered voter suppression, and Mr. C Mr. Scott, a Republican of South Carolina, countering that the real threat to democracy was coming from the left. And, you know, as I said, the proceedings went on for about 10 hours. And, um, you know, it, it, in, it really highlighted how heavily the white leaders of both parties lean on the few black members of their rank and file when issues of race uh, come up. When Vice President Harris, a uh, former senator from California, who was the first black woman to serve in that post, briefly presided over the debate on Wednesday night, nearly half of the 11 Amer African Americans who have ever served in the Senate were present, present at once. But it also showed that the power of representation, uh, biography in debate over policy. So, you know, what exactly uh, did this debate mean? Uh, it's clear that uh, the three sen senators come from, you know, a, a varied background. Um, uh, Senator Scott, who is the son of a struggling single mother in a working class North Charleston, South Carolina. Uh, Cory Booker, who is a former Rhodes Scholar and big city mayor. Um, provided they provided a striking moment as they fought over the meaning of Jim Crow in the present day. Um, Senator Scott used the elections of all three black men, but especially himself and Mr. Warnock, to back up his case that America is a nation of expanding democratic opportunity, not voter suppression and inequality. In a quote uh, by the, the senator, he said, and I quote, it's hard to deny progress when two of the three come from the southern states, which people say are the places where African-American votes are being suppressed, he said. Uh, Mr. Warnock, who ministers from Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta, uh, notably the, pub the pulpit, which the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. preached from, closed the debate with an appeal to every senator. So, and his words were, and I quote, let the message go out. You cannot honor Martin Luther King and work to dismantle his legacy at the same time, Mr. Warnock was quoted. Two days after King's holiday, when virtually every senator of every political stripe produced an obligatory tribute to the slain civil rights leader. I will not sit quietly while some make Dr. King the victim of identity theft, quote. 
The groundbreaking positions of the men, no doubt, are part of the reason they were thrust to the center stage. Mr. Scott's the first black senator from the South since Reconstruction. Mr. Warnock is the first uh, African-American to represent Georgia in the Senate and the first black Democrat to be elected to the Senate by a former slate of the, by, I'm sorry, by a former state of the Confederacy. And Mr. Booker is his state's first black senator. So the, the, the point of the article, I, it, I mean, it's, it's rather lengthy. I won't go through it in, in full detail. But the, the point of the article revolves around the fact that, you know, even though these three gentlemen share the distinction of being black male senators in the United States Senate, um, they come from, you know, different backgrounds. Uh, they grew up in different backgrounds and they come from different political backgrounds. Um, but the, the key is that, you know, they, they all take the opportunity they have to not only represent their party, but represent the perspective of, you know, uh, black men in the party and, you know, ha have brought that to the floor and made it a, a point of contention and a point that the Senate uh, should be honor-bound to, to take up. Another point that uh, was brought out in the article, and I think this is one of the key takeaways, is that um, these, the, the three here, even though you know, they, you know, two of them come from Democrat Party and one comes from Republican Party, they all share in a, a characteristic where when there is an issue uh, revolving around black people uh, or you know a, a policy that impacts minority voters, uh, the three of them become the go-to people. And you know this this is something that you know I have had experience with in in my professional career, where you know I, I have been on occasion asked to give, and I'm doing air quotes here, the black perspective on an issue because I am the only black person you know, in the office or working for the company and so forth. So I, I see that and it's part of the reason why this article kind of resonated with me. Um, you know, and it was clear that, you know, in the article cites that in the end, no amount of pressure from Mr. Warnock could sway a single Republican to back the voting rights and election protection bill or persuade the two balking Democrats, Senator Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin, to support uh, weakening the filibuster to advance it over GOP opposition. And, you know, in the same fashion, um, nor could Mr. Scott save his party from the fallout of defending voting restrictions passed by Republican legislatures that Democrats say are intended to disenfranchise minority voters. And, you know, they, they cite the statements that came out from uh, minority, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell on Wednesday when, when asked about protests from voters of color over the new restrictions. Mr. McConnell said, quote, the concern is misplaced because if you look at the, the statistics, African-American voters are voting in just as high a percentage as Americans, close quote. 
Uh, critics interpreted the comment as implying that either black voters are not wholly American or that the top Senate Republican considered American synonymous with white. Um, and, you know, I, I remember when hearing Senator McConnell make that statement, um, immediately cringing uh, at, at the statement being made and then transitioning quickly to anger that the statement was made. Um, there is a lot of work to be done in this country, in my opinion. And, you know, one of the things that the people need to do and, and, you know, part of our ongoing call to action is not only holding our existing representatives and senators to account, but also expanding the ranks of people that uh, look like us, regardless of what you look like, and, you know, feel and, and, and think in the same vein as you do, uh, no matter what your party, what your affiliation, you know, left, right, center, you know, whatever. Um, but it's, it's up to each of us to make sure that we are engaging with our elected officials and um, getting, getting the message out that we expect them to remember who sent them to their office to begin with and what our expectations are in terms of what policies we are in favor of and what policies we are against and that they should act accordingly. So, you know, that um, is, you know, part of what this article is about. There's a lot more. Um, for the interest of time, I, I won't go through all of it. We will definitely touch back on, on this subject uh, over the course of the, the coming year. Uh, voting rights and voting issues are going to be front and center as we make our way to the midterms uh, this year. So that being said, um, the last piece that I want to bring out for this week's show is, of course, as I start at the top saying, you know, this is Black History Month. Um, if you go to the, the show's Facebook page, which is facebook.com, uh, slash fired up radio. Uh, I'm going to post a link to a uh, Wikipedia wiki that contains a list of African American firsts, you know, first things that, you know, first African American things that were done from, and th this list is fairly extensive. It goes back to the 1670s where the uh, first African-American to own land in Boston, uh, someone by the name of Zipporah Potter At Atkins, uh, the first African-American to own land in Boston. And it goes all the way up to 2022, uh, first African-American woman to appear on U.S. currency uh, is Maya Angelou, and that uh, was approved uh, just this past, uh, within the past week or 10 days. So that uh, quarters coming out uh, soon will have a picture of Maya Angelou on them. Uh, and so it, it goes through and lists the first uh, African-Americans of many different characterizations and so forth so it's worth it's worth a look uh, go to the Facebook page and and check it out uh, and as I said at the top if 
you're listening to this on the WJMS radio website, be aware that this podcast and all of the Fired Up podcasts are available on demand from you know our our Google, um, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Uh, you can go there, search for WJMS, uh, or search for Fired Up, and you'll find uh, our collection there. So that's going to wrap up the show for this session. Thank you all for for tuning in, for downloading and listening to the podcast. If there are any questions you have or information you want or items you want to discuss, please send an email to the show at firedupradio at yahoo.com. You can uh, link to us through the WJMS media page. And that uh, address is uh, still wjmsradio.com. Uh, please go check out our site. Uh, as of Tuesday, the 1st of February, we are officially relaunching the WJMS Media site. So if you go there, um, Jamie has a lot of announcements going on as to what's coming from the site and so forth. So we, we look forward to uh, a bright new future for WJMS. Thank you all for listening as always. Please stay safe and, you know, Make sure that you're uh, staying tuned in to Fired Up. And we'll be releasing another podcast as we do each week. So I will be talking at you with a new subject within seven days. Take care, everybody. Stay safe.